Have you ever had a prayer that's gone unanswered? I'm sure you have, just like me. But I don't mean just any prayer, not like a parking spot prayer. Something you really, really needed. Something that's really important to you that went unanswered. Hey, right now in our chat, you can just click that button, that engage moment button that just raises your hand. I think it's good to know. How many of us, if you click that button right now, we're all in the same boat. I'm there. I've had so many prayers unanswered. We're looking at John chapter 11 today because it's about a prayer, a really important prayer that went unanswered. This is what it says. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister, Martha. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Now, listen to this. This is the important part. You can feel the emotion and the pain and the disappointment in this unanswered prayer. I can feel it. I'm sure you can too. This is what she said. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why should we bother praying if God isn't going to show up? Why should we bother centering our life on Christ? Why should we bother seeking first his kingdom? Why should we bother putting our trust in God if God isn't going to show up and doesn't answer our prayers, unanswered prayers. I want to believe, but my prayers aren't answered. And it really sets me back in my relationship with God. So we're here at the cemetery today, Arlington National Cemetery. And we chose this location very specifically because it represents hundreds and hundreds of thousands of unanswered prayers. The old saying, there's no atheists in foxholes. You got to imagine soldiers who died in battle, prayed and prayed and prayed, but just, not just their prayers. Their family and their friends prayed, God, keep them safe. God, bring them back home alive, safe and sound. And that prayer, those prayers went unanswered. Why? So we're here at the cemetery today where heroes are, but they prayed and their families prayed, but those prayers went unanswered. What do we do about that? What do we do about that when our prayers aren't answered? Listen, I just want to say this. I want to be really, really clear about this. I'm not a fan of suffering. For me, suffering and unanswered prayers go hand in hand because I don't pray to suffer. The Bible doesn't tell us to pray to suffer, to not, we're not supposed to go out and try to seek to suffer. So prayer and unanswered prayer and suffering, they go hand in hand because when I pray, I pray for suffering to be alleviated. I pray for my life and my own life or my family or the world that we would avoid suffering, that we would get out of it, that God would prevent suffering from taking place, that God would heal, that God would protect all of those things. I'm not a fan of suffering. 
I don't like to suffer. I don't like to hear about your suffering. It disturbs me. I've read so many stories in preparation for this series right here. Freak accidents, terrible things. Parents running over their children by accident in a car and the children dying and the parents just being destroyed by that. People who, you know, praying for health, praying for safety, natural disasters. It is so disturbing. So I want to be clear. I'm not a fan of suffering, either in my life or yours, but suffering makes our world a better place. There's no escaping that fact. The Bible's clear on that. The study of history is clear on that. People who suffer are wiser and deeper and stronger. They have more character to them, more experience to them. We're told this about Jesus. His whole life was filled with suffering. Isaiah 53. Jesus was a man of suffering and he was familiar with pain. The positive influence, the character of Christ, that Jesus, the things he made famous, love and patience and forgiveness and mercy and grace, the things that he made famous that influenced this world in a positive direction, and Jesus was a man of suffering and of pain. Look what Peter says about suffering. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Fiery trials, suffering is like a fire. Gold is refined in the fire. It makes it stronger, it makes it pure. That's what suffering does in our life. And then it says at the end that God's glory would be revealed. Glory, we know this. In the Bible, if you've been tracking along in this study in the Gospel of John, the word glory means identity. So Jesus Christ suffers the worst. He suffers the worst on the cross and his identity comes out as a result of that. Because when we go through suffering, when we're under intense pressure, stuff pops out of us. How often do I say to myself, or maybe you say, I didn't mean to say that, that's not me. I didn't mean to do that, that's not me. Well, we're in the midst of a difficult time or a stressful time, or maybe a time of temptation, frustration. And we do stuff and we say stuff, and we say, that's not me, but it is us. It's in there and it comes out. It's kind of like, you know, toothpaste, when you squeeze the bottle, you squeeze it, you put it under pressure and what's inside pops out. Well, on the cross, Jesus Christ showed us who he truly was. He's revealing his glory, he's revealing his identity, he's showing us exactly who he is because in that time where he should have acted towards himself, he was still loving, patient, kind, and forgiving. It revealed who he truly was because only in suffering is it revealed who we truly are. Romans 5 has something very important to say about suffering. We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Suffering makes our world a better place because it produces character. We need more character. We need to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. Listen to James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, it's interesting there. Suffering ends up in making us mature and complete. You and I, again, when we need wisdom, and you notice how that ends in wisdom, when we need wisdom, when we need to seek out wisdom, we were looking for somebody, we end up going to a wise person, and that person has experienced problems and trials and pain because it makes them deeper, mature, complete, not lacking anything. I'm reading this book. It's on your resource list. Many good resources on that list. Desmond Tutu, The Book of Forgiving. And he tells a story about Nelson Mandela. I've read books about Mandela. I thought that his life is amazing. It bothers me that he spent 27 years in prison. And I say to myself, what a waste. And Desmond Tutu says, people often say the same thing to him. What a waste. Mandela and all the good that he could have done, but he was in that prison for 27 years and that should have just never happened. But Tutu says no. Tutu says he was in that prison for 27 years and it transformed him. And it's as painful as that was and as much as it should not have happened, as much as it should not, it was undeserved, it should not have happened, it transformed him and he came out deeper and wiser and he led South Africa in healing and that would not have been possible from what Tutu's saying unless he went through suffering. So I don't like suffering. I don't want you to go through suffering and I don't want to go through suffering, but we can't deny it. The Bible tells us and history tells us, the world tells us that suffering actually makes the world a much better place, a deeper place, a wiser place. Listen to what the psalmist says, Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Before I was afflicted, but now I obey your word. What does that mean? I obey your word. It means I'm looking at the character of God because that's what God's word represents. And now I'm moving towards it. Instead of moving towards myself, I'm reflecting the character of God. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. And finally, Jesus says in John 15, he cuts off, meaning God, every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so there'll be even more fruitful. We will bear more fruit of the character of God, which is so desperately needed in this world. And that happens through suffering. I don't like it. I don't seek it. You shouldn't either. But suffering makes our world a better place. The famous psychiatrist and psychoanalyst Carl Jung says this, there is no coming to consciousness without pain. Now, everybody, it is very disturbing when our prayers aren't answered, particularly when it's something really, really important to us. I want to believe, but my prayers, they're not answered. Jesus, Jesus didn't have his prayer answered in the garden. Jesus was surrounded by trees, just like I am right now, and he prayed a very important prayer. We're told that it was so important that he was sweating. He was impassioned. Have you ever prayed like that? He needed an answer, and he needed it to be yes. He needed his father to come through, and his father said no. His prayer went unanswered, so he can totally identify with you. We're also told this about Jesus. When he went to that garden and was beside those trees, he took his friends with him because he needed his friends. Here at Grace, we call it community groups. You're gonna need somebody with you. You're gonna have lots of prayers that go unanswered. I'm gonna have lots of prayers that go unanswered, but we can have a group of people around us as an example from Jesus that will help us through. Pastor Brian's gonna to talk to us right now about the importance and how we can get into community groups so that we can talk about this very important series and this very important topic. Thank you, Brian. Okay, everybody, I wanna go real high level. What is the Bible telling us about God's 
main mission, primary mission, what is God trying to accomplish in this world? So here's the way I was raised, is that Genesis 1-1 is telling us about ex nihilo creation. In other words, ex nihilo means out of nothing. That Genesis 1-1 tells us when everything got made, like when all the material got made, and that Adam and Eve were the very first couple and that God walked with them in the garden and they decided to rebel against God. They were infected with sin. They were cast out of the garden, but Jesus has come to rescue us if we will just commit our lives to Christ, if we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, that he has come to rescue us out of this world, to save us from the fires of hell, to go to heaven. We are saved from the pain and suffering of this world. And also, I want you to think about this. Scripture says where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there in the midst of all that. And so I always looked at that verse that there is power in corporate prayer. There's power in prayer. There's power in prayer. But there's something about when two or three get together in his name to pray, that there's a greater chance that their prayers are going to be answered. So that's just a brief kind of overview that Christ's major mission in this world is to save me from this world and to save me from suffering and to save me from death and to rescue me out of this world. Okay, I I hope I emphasize that point enough. That was my idea. Now, I'm going to tell you what I've come to learn, what the major mission of God is in the world. And it's a little different. So I'm just going to ask you just to be patient with the process to think about it because many of you are just like me you were raised with that general understanding as well and this is new this is going to be really new to you but i want to ask you these things that we're talking about like unanswered prayer isn't going away suffering probably isn't going away anytime soon we're going to have to wrestle with this and so we just need to think and to learn and to understand what is the bible saying to us so i have a long list of resources And you can read about this. And and here's the thing, everybody. What I'm getting ready to share with you, many of you are going to say, well, I've never heard of this before, John. Here's the thing. We have learned so much in the past 100 years. In and around Iraq, starting in the 1920s, all the way up to the 1970s, we discovered thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cuneiform texts that gave us a window in to the biblical world to culture and to language and to what questions were they asking. Not what we asking. We really need to know what questions they were asking because it was written to them. All The Bible was written for us, but it just wasn't written to us. It was written to them. So we really need to ask ourselves, what questions were they asking? And so we have just leaps and bounds. And that with the Dead Sea Scrolls, all of this just kind of, we have discovered so much in the past 100 years. And so these scholars They know the language, they understand the culture, and they're helping us to understand better what is the Bible saying to us, particularly what is Genesis saying to us, particularly those first couple of chapters, what are they saying to us, and what does that say to us about the mission of God, what is God primarily concerned about in this world, and what were they primarily concerned about, okay? One last thing about these scholars, as I share this, you might say, well, John, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe these scholars have a low view of the Bible. I just need to say this, so just put you at rest, okay? These scholars actually that I have listed have an extremely high view of the Bible, very high view of the Bible. Matter of fact, and if you've been around the Bible for a long time, when I say the word inerrant, you immediately pick up on it, okay? If you haven't, maybe you've never heard that word before, but that means to believe the Bible is without error. 
as a really high view. And they believe the Bible is inerrant, but inerrant in its interpretation. That unless we interpret what it's saying from its culture and its context, then the Bible could be filled with error if we misinterpret. Now, that's in keeping with Jesus, because Jesus said the same thing. He, he never got on the Pharisees, the religious leaders, because of their belief in the Bible. Jesus upheld the Bible. It's like, yes, it's magnificent. It's God's word. What he came down on them was, was the wrong interpretation. Here's where we go. How can we rightly divide God's word? What is this? I'm just asking, just think, I'm just going to offer a suggestion to you here after a tremendous amount of study by some of the best scholarship that we have in the entire world, okay? Genesis 1-1 is not talking about ex nihilo creation. Genesis 1-1 is not talking about stuff getting made, material getting made. The Bible upholds ex nihilo creation, that God created all of matter. Genesis 1-1 just isn't that story. It's not ex nihilo. Actually, what Genesis 1-1, and we know because of the language, because we understand it so much better now, is actually telling us how things got formed to function, how it, how God was bringing order, and order was really what they were concerned with. They were afraid of disorder and of chaos. And God was saying to them, I will bring into order things. And that's why when you read in those first few days of creation that God, I create this and then, then I fill it up. So he's like, I'm creating this and now I'm pulling this into order. Now, before all this, I really didn't care about day number seven in creation. Like my old view of understanding the text because that's stuff was getting made in days one to six. I mean, God doesn't even seem to be very excited about day number seven because he's resting. And none of us are really interested in watching somebody rest. But in this understanding that God is bringing to order, that he is removing the chaos, day seven is the most important day because day seven rest represents, again, language, culture, understanding. That's the day that God is saying, now I'm going to maintain everything. Things are going to work right. I'm on the throne. I'm at the center of this garden and this garden's going to function the right way, which is what they wanted. Actually, it's what you and I want. We want things to function right. So that was God's primary concern, that things would function, they would function right. Adam and Eve weren't the first couple. They were a very unique couple, just like Abraham and Sarah, but they weren't the first couple. The language there of the text is not indicating they were the first couple. Adam didn't call it Eve, Eve, and Eve didn't call Adam, Adam. We know that for sure because those are Hebrew names, and Hebrew as a language wasn't even created when those words were spoken. So that that's an impossibility right there. But they were a very unique couple, but they weren't the first couple. Now, it goes on. It says that they were made in God's image, and the image of God is functional. We are to reflect the very character of God and that the primary mission that God's concerned with is the expansion of his garden, the expansion of his character out into the world that is filled with chaos. Like the garden was functioning right. It was ordered rightly. Things were happening rightly there. And God says, now I need you to go out. I need you to expand into the world. But instead of the garden and the order of the garden expanding into the world, the chaos from outside the garden actually invaded. The opposite happened. And it was a major setback for all of humanity. And Adam and Eve serve as archetypes. Archetypes that all of us would have done the exact same thing. 
we would have failed at that same thing. And that's the story that is actually telling us. So now they have to leave the garden. And they, they leave and they have two sons. They have Cain and Abel. And Cain gets mad with Abel and he kills him. And then he has to go farther away. He's, he's, he's farther abandoned, ostracized from the rest of his family. And we're told this, Cain says to God, he says, God, anybody who sees me is going to kill me. Well, right there, we're solving a problem. Because if they were the first couple instead of a unique couple, who is that? There's nobody out there to kill them. And then we're told that Cain marries. Well, who in the world is he marrying? If this is describing to us the first couple, there's nobody out there to marry. And then we're told he builds a city. So it also solves that problem because what are you going to build a city and you're going to be the baker and the candlestick maker and the police officer and everything else? What city are you going to have? A city of one person. It doesn't make sense. That's how it works. So all those problems begin to be solved. And again, look, I know that this, this is new, but we have learned so much. And now it just makes sense that God comes in and what their question was is, can we have order? Can all of this chaos, and God says, yes, if you'll center your life on me, I will bring order to the chaos. And Adam and Eve were commissioned to go and to spread that order of the garden, a life centered upon God into all the world. And instead they did the exact opposite and they allowed the disorder and the chaos outside the garden to come in and to invade. And later on, we're told something really important. Adam and Eve had another son, his name is Seth. And at that time it says, people began to call on the name of the Lord. What does name represent in scripture? Character. So people began to call on and to begin to try to, with God's help, to reflect God's very character. Now, there's some things that are interchangeable in the scripture. It talks about garden. The Bible talks a lot about kingdom, temple, tabernacle, the presence of God, and the image of God. These things all go together. They're all saying the same thing that when we are reflecting the very character of God, that God's presence, that God's tabernacle, that God's garden is there in the midst, and we are serving to multiply that out into the world. So Genesis 1.28, God's commission to Adam and Eve is to be fruitful and to increase in number, to be fruitful and multiply. Jesus, his last words in Matthew were the same exact thing. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. God says to Adam and Eve, I need you to expand to the ends of the earth and multiply this garden. And God, Jesus says to the disciples, I need you to go into all the nations. It's just a reiteration of the same primary concern that God has. Now, this, this is important. This is what God is most interested in. He has seen his garden, his temple, his character expand to all the world bringing order to all the chaos that our world sees. This is his primary concern, that we be order bringers. Now, I mentioned where two or three are gathered in his name. He is there in the midst. And I used to think that being the primary concern, that I'm saved from suffering and pain and all those things, and I'm saved from it, God's going to get me out of this world. Now I see that what God is trying to do is get me and a bunch of other people to reflect his character in this world. Now I see two or three are gathered in his name. We're not there to get our prayers answered. We're there to get God's prayers answered. That when two or three are gathered in his name, that means two or three, you're getting a group of people together who are reflecting the very character of God, then God shows up. How do you get God's presence? God's presence is in the temple. God's presence is in the garden. God's presence is in my life. God's presence is in the tabernacle. God's presence is in the kingdom. How does God's presence show up? How does the world get changed? How does order happen? His primary concern, his primary concern, it happens when we reflect the very character 
of Almighty God. This is not a salvation from the world. This is a salvation to the world. God's not trying to get me out of the world. Jesus said, I'm not taking you out of the world. What I'm trying to do is get you to reflect the character of Christ in this world. And here's the thing. Suffering, suffering according to scripture produces the very character of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you a story about the Holocaust. This, uh, this was after the Holocaust, actually, a couple decades after the Holocaust, but it was reflecting on the Holocaust. And there's a famous rabbi and some, some pretty important businessman went to visit him. He was in Jerusalem and they got an appointment. He didn't have much time. And the rabbi looked at them and said, gentlemen, I don't have much time. I want to ask you this question. What was the lesson we learned from the Holocaust? And they kind of stammered. They didn't know what to say. They were afraid about saying the wrong thing. And finally, one guy said, it teaches us that never again, never again will we stand by, never again will we do this. And everybody's like, yeah, man, you nailed it. You got it right. And the rabbi said, no, that is not the lesson from the Holocaust. The lesson from the Holocaust is this. They've put us on trains and they mistreated us. They treat us as inhuman people and they divided husbands and wives and mothers from children. And they totally just, 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 just destroyed people, destroyed them. Terrible what they did and how they mistreated them. And he says when they, when they took people off of those, those cars to go to those concentration camps, they would give one person out of every six people, one out of six, a blanket and put them in a very cold barracks. And here's the one thing that we've learned from the Holocaust. It was those people who took that blanket, instead of pulling it towards themselves, they pushed it towards five other people. It's the human spirit. And he says, now, gentlemen, I need you to go back to New York City and I need you to push your blanket to five other people. You know what that's saying? That's character, everybody. This is what God is calling us to do. Unanswered prayer, suffering, actually expands the garden because it expands God's character in our lives. Here's the fill-in for today. We need to trust God to multiply his character through suffering and unanswered prayer in our lives. I've uh, been reading a book. It's there on your resource list. It's by Rabbi Steve Leader. And this is what he says. He says the ancients, those who were in the Bible, the ancients in the Bible didn't pray for cures. They didn't pray for cures because they, they were surrounded by death. They knew where they were going to die. You think about this, Jesus eventually in the story, we're gonna get to it in the story, not today, but another time, he raises Lazarus from the dead. But you know something about Lazarus today? He's dead. Matter of fact, every single person that Jesus Christ healed, they're all dead today. And so Steve Leader says, Rabbi Leader says, look, they didn't pray for cures because they were surrounded by so much death and suffering and pain. What they prayed for was to be aware of God because if they were aware of God, maybe they would reflect God more and God's character more. And then Rabbi Steve goes on to say, he says, look, I don't pray for things. Now I'm not saying we shouldn't because I do. I pray for things and the Bible has it where we're praying for things, but the main driving point in the Bible, what to pray for is not to pray for things, not to pray for the alleviation from suffering or, 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 to, or to pray for the rent to be paid. Of course, pray for that. Of course I do. And I will continue to do that. But the main thing to pray for is to pray to be rid of something is what Rabbi Steve says, to be rid of lust, to be rid of anger, to be rid of unforgiveness or bitterness or rage, all of those things, to be rid of stuff that needs to get out of our lives so that we can reflect the very character of God because it's his primary concern. I, 
I don't like unanswered prayer and I don't like suffering, but suffering changes the world. And when my prayers go unanswered, it is an opportunity, according to the Bible, for me to be transformed and changed through that suffering to have the very character of Christ. And that's God's primary concern, not answering our prayers. I know it's tough and I don't like it. I don't like it. But I do know that it makes our world a much, much better place. Well, this past Friday, was September 11th. Terrible day. Terrible day. I, I remember where I was. It was a Tuesday. It was a beautiful day, much like today. Beautiful day. And the images that I saw of suffering and pain and tragedy that day were terrible. I never want to see them again. Terrible, terrible, terrible day. A day of tremendous suffering. But you know what? September 11th is also a day where thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people also reflected the character of Christ, where people did things over and above, where they showed virtue and they showed compassion and they showed selflessness and many even laid down their lives for other people. And in the midst of suffering, there were bright spots of people pushing their blankets towards other people and reflecting the very character of Christ. This is a really important series we're into. We have to take a look at what the scripture is really telling us about how the world works and what God is trying to do in it. Will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, give us strength in the midst of suffering and unanswered prayer. We are going to need your help. Father, fulfill your primary mission in this world. Expand your garden to the ends of the earth, to the knowledge of you God covers this entire planet. May your character be revealed in all of us, in Christ's name. Amen.